You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon. And this week we are going to go back and do what I did with Elton and Paul a few weeks ago. Oh my god. I don't know. Have you. Okay. Yes, you oh, two. That, not that. Oh, okay. I wonder why you wanted fine. three people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> you two are my reserve Elton and. Have we got Paul. St. John's ambulance lined up? <laughs> well, you might need it. I won't. I shan't be doing an awful lot of talking tonight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You two want to be equidistant. Yeah. <coughs> yeah this is getting worse. Before. JR doesn't do any talking. It's just kind of like Neanderthal grunting that he does. <laughs> oh, I watched Early Man again today, speaking of Neanderthal grunting. Oh. <coughs> We're getting repeated showings of Captain Underpants in my house. Are you? Mm. I've not seen it. No. But, you know, given okay. what you were trying to say about the conversation two minutes ago, that seems about right. It's all right, just the ones. Okay. Right, what we're going to do is we are going to talk about stories that your opinion's changed on. And actually, I'm writing it up for the magazine, so I'm not going to do it because I'm going to do my list in the magazine. So this week, I'm just going to sit back and let you two talk. But what we're talking about is stories that you either liked when you first saw them and then you know, as an adult or whatever, years later you came back to and thought, oh, maybe not so much after all. Or stories that you didn't like so much when you were a kid or whenever you first saw them and that you came back to afterwards and revised your opinion on. And I'm going to be starting with Matt. So, so have, have you already written yours? Yeah. So there's... What? But it won't be out until after this podcast. Okay. Well, probably not long after this podcast. Right, yeah. So we're hoping that you haven't chosen some of the ones we've chosen. Well, it doesn't matter if I have or not, because I shan't be talking about them. Yeah, you will. I'm not doing... It's a podcast. You'll still talk to us about them, won't you? That wasn't my intention. You interject. Okay. You're not going to interject. You're just going to stay silent as we just monologue about these. (laughs) Yes, I'm having a week off. Okay. It's the Matt and Simon show. Mimon. (laughs) Okay. Horns, of the, horns of the Mimon. Well, given something that we'll discuss before we sign off at the end of the podcast, this is my test run to see if you two can do it without me. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, that, and, and Simon demonstrates we can't by swearing <laughs> immediately. <laughs> right, okay. Either of you, or both of you, or one after the other, you're listening to the Blue Box podcast over the next 60 minutes. We're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you, it's Matt. My name is Matt. No, no, no. You have to do the intro line. I'm testing oh, you I'm out sorry. for the intro oh. line. You're listening to the Blue Box podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Nah, rubbish. Simon. Because <laughs> if I'm going to be any better, uh, there's no way on earth I'm going to do this without stumbling. You're listening to the Blue Box podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Dreadful. That wasn't bad at all. Okay, well, we'll have to get Lee in, obviously. Oh, oh God, Lee. (laughs) Try and get Lee to remember anything is just... He couldn't even remember to be here. 
or let us know that he wasn't coming. <laughs> anyway, mm. Matt, give me a choice. Okay, so that my first choice is uh, Sharda. Oh, okay. It's a story that, and this is a story that I've has improved in my mind over time. So I first watched, understandably perhaps, because it's changed over time. Well, yeah. Um, I first watched Sharda um, on video with Tom Baker doing, the, doing yeah. linking narrations when I was quite young. I think I was fairly young. It must have come out when I was sort of late teens, I think. I see it on your shelf. Running yeah, it. yeah. It came out in 93... Was That's it a the... dreadful sleeve, isn't it? That VHS sleeve yeah. with that clapperboard. It was. It came out around about the time of so, the thirtieth yeah. anniversary. So I was, yes, because it has a thirtieth anniversary. Well, it doesn't, but almost. Um, Tom Baker's so, got a clapperboard sticking out his head, like mm-hmm. out of his afro, like some people have combs sticking out their afro. Yeah, and that's probably the most dramatic, <laughs> dramatic thing about it. So ninety, if it is around ninety three, I would have been sixteen. Yeah. So it's the equivalent of me watching it. On first transmission is watching this this story and it was a bit like a dry archaeological exercise rather than having fun watching a Doctor Who story. Yeah. It's watching you watch it for the for the existing footage. You want to watch it for the footage that is in the five doctors, but you want to see what happens after that footage appears. And you watch it for a Tom Baker performance that you haven't seen before. Both, both from the season seventeen time, but also Tom Bacon narrating it, um, and I didn't mind it at the time, but it wasn't fun. I don't think it was entertaining, and I don't think I didn't get into the story. You can't because as soon as the story mm. starts going anywhere, it starts disappearing on you, doesn't it? And, and this one more than others. I mean, I could I could get into things like the invasion, which was done in a similar way. Um, with with that kind of cutting to cutting to narration, the difference but, being, but, but that narration yeah. was in a block, whereas this yeah. was spread throughout the whole story. Exactly, so yeah. it was very disjointed. Um, so I always had the impression that Sharda wasn't the classic people claimed it to be, and probably not the sort of the the lost gem that needed to be reconstructed. Uh, it's always been very much. I always always remember the 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 Doctor Who magazine edition that came out in the eighties, the one with the cover mm, where they they yeah. went into detail on the story. So yeah. it's, it's a bullet point story, isn't it? You think, oh, it's it's Tom Baker, mm. it's Lala Ward, it's um, Professor Cronotis, who's a retired Time Lord, mm. amazing idea. Um, it's a Time Lord prison planet. Where there are Zygons and there are Daleks and all this and there's all these lovely bullet points and it's written by Douglas Adams so yeah. it must be amazing yeah it yeah. must be um, so it really built up quite a thing so, in my head yeah. over years yeah so it had been built up mm. and then you watch this and you get the sneaking impression that actually the best bits of Sharda have been made which is the the good looking bits mm. yeah. and the chasing around Cambridge and then the bits on the spaceship are the bits where it would obviously fall flat and you think a bit of Stones of Blood, which I've always liked, obviously, the location stuff, and I haven't quite liked the spaceship stuff as yeah, much. Yeah. And I know some people do, but I've, I found that mm. I can never love Stones of Blood because the promise of the location bits never quite matched the, the tinsel-like mm. courtroom, courtroom drama. 
Um, so and so that I, I found it quite. I wouldn't say I found it disappointing because I kind of was anticipating it not being easy to watch. I was approaching it as this kind of study rather than this idea that it was going to be fun. Mm. Um, it's far more laboured than I expected it to be. Yeah, but then, but then, then I watched the recent animation. Mm. Did you and see w- the Levine one first, or just the? I, w- the I watched one? bits of the Levine one, um, and I'll admit that my view of the person probably got in the way of me oh, enjoying enough. it. My feeling that there was a there was a sense of sort of desperation behind the reconstructions, and also the the animation as well put me off. What I could oh, see of the animation. The animation was all right. I just... And it didn't have Tom Baker as well. Well, yeah, yeah. That's that, a sticking point. That made a difference. Um, whereas this one... So I went into the recent animation with very low expectations. And actually I watched it all the way through in one without go. breaking in one go. Yeah. And I really enjoyed... I've still not seen it, so... I really yeah. enjoyed the spaceship mm. bits. Because even though Tom Baker's much older... With his performance behind it, with his voice behind it, with Lala Ward's voice behind it, the humour of Douglas Adams does come through and mm. it does work. And possibly also by this point, I'd read or listened to the audiobook of. Um, McGann? No, of the book. Oh, yeah, right. With yeah, Lala yeah. Ward reading the book. And whilst, <coughs> whilst Lala Ward's narration wasn't ideal for me, that still gave me a sense of the whole story yeah, in a yeah. way that I'd never got before. Did it feel over long to you? Because it did to me. It felt like it could have finished good. The book? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I think I think the spaceship scenes in the book probably didn't need to... Could have been narrated in a few chapters rather than... Mm. That felt stretched. But it felt like they were approaching the script with a certain degree of reverence that meant that they couldn't cut bits out. So this was, they were approaching yeah. Douglas Adams' script. Mm. So to edit that down would be sacrilegious in some way. Levine did that with his animation. So right. some of the episodes came in at like nearly 35 minutes. Right. Because they just wouldn't yeah. cut it down. Yeah, yeah. Which is whereas, obviously wrong. Whereas the the recent animation, I don't know if they edited it down, but it certainly felt Very like... Very much. <laughs> but it did feel like... But it still felt Douglas Adamsy. It still felt like what I understand the joy of Douglas Adams to be. Mm. It's, it felt a bit like the bits of City of Death that I liked. Mm. It's not perfect. And the the animation still distracts you from the other bits. And the live footage is still much, by far and away, the best looking bits of the story. And I suspect it would have been if it, they'd finished it. Yeah. But, but the the spaceship bits were improved in the animation to the point where I enjoyed it a lot. All right, Matt. Uh, Matt. All right, Simon. Let's right. have a choice from you. <laughs> um, I'm going to rewind right to the uh, very start because I've recently just... Uh, I've started doing with a lot of things in my life. I'm starting to uh, segment things because I'm not getting things done, so I'm doing half an hour of something a day and breaking it down so I can do it. And what I am doing is starting to rewatch Doctor Who from the start, mm-hmm. an episode a day. Mm-hmm. Hasn't worked completely because there's been days where I just haven't managed to get to the television. So yeah, my but... system's completely broken down. But uh, going back to the start, I was amazed at how much I loved An Unearthly Child. Mm-hmm. Because if I go back to when I was, I guess I was 10 years old, was it the Five Faces? Five Faces, 81? Yeah. yeah. So I would have been 10. Mm. And watching that, and as fascinated as I was by it, it did feel like 
the caveman story, as I'm sure a lot of people feel, was tagged on to an amazing first episode. And it you felt know, intensely a, dull. Yeah, I had a completely different reaction to mm. it on the five faces. I don't know whether it's maybe just because I was like three years older or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But I found the caveman bits fascinating and I've always liked them. I, it may have been to do with the fact that I was massive. Well, I know we we're all massively into do, uh, dinosaurs and things like that. And I mm. always remember getting into trouble with my teacher at school when I used to take model kits in. This was before FX did dinosaur models. There was another company made dinosaur models. And there was a Brontosaurus and there was a, a T-Rex and things. But they always had cavemen figures as <laughs> really? part of the set. And my teacher would give me absolute hell when I'd bring them in to say, look at my new model kit that I painted with my grandfather. Mm. And she would say, why on earth is there a caveman? <laughs> you know, so, she doesn't know. No, she wasn't she around. No, they had great big axes and things <laughs> way out of proportion with the rest of their bodies. But anyway... Um, so I, I built up this thing about cavemen, and uh, I absolutely loved um, the uh, uh, the film 10 Million Years BC, is it? One, no, million. one million Years, sorry. I loved it that much, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but I think I was an early developer as far as Racker Welsh was concerned. But anyway, um, <laughs> but but I took from that, you know, the cavemen didn't talk, and when, and, uh, and when they do talk in drama, they all do the ugh sort of voices so there's a bit of that as well so I think I was turned off a bit by that but what I will say is the, on the recent rewatch it's amazing how you can what what blows me away by those uh, that early season of Doctor Who is how it behaves like you know like vintage TV drama it's a proper TV drama and that that story plays out just beautifully, if you get past the cosmetic idea of the power struggle that's going on amongst them all and, and how the visitors come into it, and you sort of think, oh my God, these these are literally time travellers. These are literally modern people who have been thrown into this situation in the Stone Age and they're making sense of it as they see fit. And um, I, I, I was just really amazed at how much how much I got from it. I think it's a really great character piece, mm. and I think it's a really terrifying story. Yeah, yeah, it has it has certain advantages in in all of Doctor Who because you're introducing every character, including mm. the Doctor, for the first time, and presumably they had a fair amount of time to write it and guess it right. Well, because this yeah. had been the story that they'd been preparing for. Well, except they were preparing as a as well different story and the giants, but yeah. but. It still must have had... It still wasn't the case of Terry Nation bashing out an episode no. per week to be filmed. So there's there's that. So it, it's probably sort of... It's designed to introduce the characters, which is a much mm. not easier way of writing a story, but it gives you that extra dimension. Absol- absolutely. But, but I think in a story in its own right, regardless of its relationship to the rest of Doctor Who, it did feel incredibly claustrophobic and incredibly evocative mm. of of a time we have no conception of in but as I'm much also... as humans were behaving like animals to the point you know where they, they were all sleeping together in in huddles in the caves you know and I, I imagine from bones and things like that we know that that probably was the case that you know for warmth they would just huddle together yeah. i mean you've got the whole thing about this hunt of fire where fire becomes this they, well, they it's kind all... of condense this it's an all an analogy for politics, mm. which makes it even more ironic that it went out the day after Kennedy got shot, mm. Mm. which is, you know, a big theme of the thing is 
you could read it as an analogy of American politics, really. Mm, mm. But um, there's that lovely moment where, uh, uh, don't ask me to, to remember the names because they're just sounds, aren't they? But Carl, um, so, so I can't remember. Who's the, who's the good one? There's one who who takes the he take, there's Zara. there's a moment where he takes the leap of imagination mm. to. It's Cal and Zara, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably Cal, isn't it? He take he takes the leap of imagination to um, to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Doctor. Yeah. And that moment is quite quite Magical. a thing, really. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, no. also, it's also so it's it's an analogy for the Cold War, but it's also about what was it written about. Speaking honestly, was it written as such, or are you reading that into it? No, I think it's there. You do? I do think it's there, because anybody who writes a story, that story has to be informed by what's going on in the world around you. Mm. Because, regardless of... I suppose even by osmosis, it's Yeah, but if you sit down and say, right, I'm going to write a story about X, cavemen, whatever... Then you have to think, well, what plot do you tell about cavemen? And as soon as you get into politics and power struggles, you can't help but put things in the plot, even if subconsciously that remind you of things that you've seen in real life. And if what's going on in real life around you is somebody like Kennedy arriving in the world of politics, Mm. there are bound to be one or two things that find... So I think it works its way through. I don't think it's imagination to see it. But it also extends the storyline from the first episode, which is, it's like you say, it's about humans suddenly discovering that there's more to their world or more to the universe than they thought, Mm. which is exactly what happens with... So it's Ian and Barbara going into the TARDIS for the first time is Carl and Zara seeing fire for the first time. Yeah, they reflect each other. It's just bubbling it down to its sort of basic elements. They all they all reflect each other. Mm. A certain amount of um, I was seeing a lot of Lady Macbeth as well. In I'm sure if if Anthony Coburn was still alive and you interviewed him, he'd say it was all intentional. <laughs> because because <laughs> this is what I mean. This is what I mean. But you know, at the end of the day, yeah. that doesn't change it, your no, experience. If I don't you read the stuff. Yeah, into yeah, it, I don't think it, it matters because, it, like yeah. Jr. says, I mean, all of these are arch- it's like an archetypal story, mm. and like you said, there's an osmosis that happens between real life and any work of fiction children's fiction regardless of the writer regardless of how stupid the writer is or uninformed the writer is there's always an osmosis between politics and the real world and yeah it's why why you can write about fireman sam and read certain things into fireman sam if you wanted to (laughs) should we move on matt and have your next choice so what's, uh, let me just, because you've written these down in seasons, so I've got to remember. Oh, so my next choice. Um, s- similar, so this is uh, from good to bad. Mm-hmm. And this is a similar reason to Sharda, but the other way around. And it's Power, power of the Daleks. Oh, fair enough, yeah. Um, and it, my my redefinition or redefining of Power of the Daleks is a surprisingly recent one. Um, so I grew up listening to... Um, these lost Dalek stories on audio tape, yeah. the original soundtrack, and on the old tape where you really had to concentrate to listen and you yeah. really had to focus on what was saying and it was hissing and popping. And I think I had Tom Bacon rating Power of the Daleks. And I don't know who did Evil of the Daleks. It might have been Tom Baker doing both. I possibly. think Colin Baker Oh, Colin did Baker one? did Power. Yeah, Colin Baker power, did yeah. Power. Yeah. So it was completely disjointed. But because you had to focus on what was saying and there was a hissing and popping, 
that meant I focused on the story and I could imagine the atmosphere and there was something about the way it was it was felt distant it also felt like I was discovering something lost lost in time and it was really exciting to listen mm, to these mm. things on my Walkman um, Evil of the Daleks I always thought was a stronger story and was probably more atmospheric but Power of the Daleks always felt really dark and mysterious and it didn't drag for me because I was listening to it as I was walking to college and back um, and so I was listening to it in bursts um, and it was a very boring walk so I was really absorbed in it and then they released the animation and I just can't get through I think the second or third episode I've managed to get so in fairness to Power of the Daleks I haven't actually watched it all the way through <laughs> recently um, so I've, I find it really difficult to get through with the visuals in place and with the the super perfected soundtrack and part of this is a symptom of of so the the process of, the, the process of restoring these old stories the process of making them look sharper than they looked when you first saw them on the television of improving the soundtrack so it's crystal clear that's great for for posterity and for rediscovering exactly the detail of what happened but there's something about restoration that that it's it takes that Effort. feeling of distance away. It takes that feeling of history away, and it also takes you slightly away from how it was first watched. So you, these old stories they weren't watched with great surround sound speakers and widescreen like crystal clear. They were watched on a really mm-hmm. small television with really fuzzy speakers. So I kind of don't want it. I can see it, I can appreciate that it's been restored, but mm. it actually detracts from the story slightly mm. for me. I kept my old film version of Tomb of the Cybermen. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's it. And it's like, color, sometimes colorization. Colorization wasn't necessarily a friend to Invasion of the Dinosaurs or The Mind of Evil. In no, some ways, no. the black and white versions, I kind of wish, wish, and you can, I suppose, easily turn it into black and white, but I wish that some of the Pertwee stories were in black and white a bit more. And likewise with Power of the Daleks. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if they found it again, maybe if Philip Morris actually discovered it buried somewhere in Zanzibar, hmm. then then I might reassess it. But trouble with Power of the Daleks, it's got no story. Well it's got a thing that happens yeah. which is the Daleks pretend to be good until the doctor can persuade people that they're not. Mm-hmm. But in between this very little really I going on. I certainly had a feeling of, am I missing something? Yeah. And it's also all about, with Patrick Troughton, it's all about either you've only got his voice and it works, or you have his performance. So with Enemy of the World, you see his performance, it works. If you have an animated Patrick Troughton with no reference point, Something lacks, even though you've got his voice. There's something lacking with it. It doesn't happen for me. Well, with, if you've with just got Carl. his voice, you're imagining what his face is doing. But if you've yeah. got his voice and an animated face, then you're no longer imagining and what his is, face is doing. And this is particular, particular to Patrick Troughton. I think there's something about Patrick Troughton that his face is so mobile and so expressive yeah. that that this really does detract. So I'd much rather listen to the Highlanders than watch. An animated power of the Daleks. It's it's really really tricky as far as that animation is concerned. But I, but I found it distracting. Yeah. 
<clears throat> yeah, I can watch the invasion. I've got. I'll go back to that. You know, the Cosgrove Hole animated invasion. Yeah, that, that I works. watch it because it's fluid and it's and it's it's no no disrespect to the people who worked on Power of the Daleks, but yeah. it, you know, it's not. It doesn't work to the same level. But then we're, we're not talking. But the invasion the same you've got the budget. Level. The invasion no, you've exactly, also got yeah. the relief of the filmed episodes, the live episodes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of takes the edge off the animation. Maybe so. I think, I think a complete animated Charlton, and it might be different with different stories. And actually, I don't hate, I don't hate Power of the Daleks. And at some point, I will watch it, mm. and I'll probably quite like it. Mm. So I'm not worried about these recent rumours of, of new potential Patrick Troughton being animated, and I'll still get them. And there is still the pleasure mm. of seeing, of that sort of historical investigation of seeing something. I don't know if it's back from the dead. I don't, whether Joe and I, Joe and I, had a conversation on the podcast, or whether we had it privately, but we were discussing about watching it in color. We did. We mentioned on the podcast, didn't we? That I far preferred watching it in color. Mm. Yeah. Now, whether that was something subconscious and as, and as base as the fact that it was just more vivid and, and it just held my attention more, but it definitely worked better for me. Mm. And I almost feel like it's there's no halfway house. Yeah. It's like you say, you either go with the original soundtrack or do you say, actually, what I'm going to do is the best version of Power of the Daleks I can. Yeah, yeah that's what I would do. I, I think so. I'd I mean, say sod stick into the camera script and just make the animation as good as you possibly can. I think so, yeah. I think you can just make it work. I think I think having both is, is my, my ideal. Mm. The most accurate recreation... For this feeling of posterity and the, the most, Daleks, the most entertaining, awesome. Yeah. The animated yeah. Daleks looked awesome. Yes, it was the character yeah. animation where it yeah. fell down for me. But yeah, but the know, story what, what, and the story isn't. Once you get past the regeneration bit, mm. the story kind of drags. But then an animated Castrovalva would be interminable. <laughs> I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't watch an animated yeah. Castrovalva. I could watch an animated Lugopolis, yeah. but not an animated Castrovalva. So maybe it's... I can't even watch the live action of Goblins. <laughs> I tell you what, though, just interjecting, just throwing this in there is that in my watching, I watched a reconstruction. Um, you know, Marco Polo. Yeah, Marco Polo, and it was so evocative. Mm. The soundtrack music, you know, I know it's probably library music, wasn't it? Um, no, I think it was. I think Marco Polo scored. I can't remember. But that made all the difference. That sounds amazing. I love the sound, the soundtrack to Marco Polo. Yeah, it's really. I've really got into the 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 soundtrack. It felt like I was story. watching a Doctor Who story. I'd, mm. A type of Doctor Who story that I hadn't seen before. Have you got to the Daleks' master plan yet? No, not yet. Okay, because no. I felt the same with that. I wasn't expecting to like that, mm. but and this isn't one of my ones. But I really, I really got absorbed into that. But, but not a reconstruction. I haven't watched any of the reconstructions. This reconstruction had the vid snaps, but they'd been coloured. So was it a loose? But actually, ca- they'd been really well coloured. Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay, okay, a coloured one. Yeah, I don't have access to these things. <laughs> well, we'll sort that out for you, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Um, what's your next choice then, Simon? My next choice is. Uh, please tell it. Please tell us how much you've fallen in love with Delta and the Bannerman. <laughs> oh, but it's Delta and Bannerman. No, great, really. isn't it, though? Ironically, this is your fault because this is where we did the rewatch of um, Paradise Towers. Did we? Oh. We did. Well, for the podcast? We sure, did, we, we did. Yeah, not for the podcast. Ago. No. Did you dream it? What's the one with the Kangs? 
Paradise Towers. Yeah, sure it was. I don't think we watched it for the podcast. Maybe we, maybe we discussed maybe we it. Discussed it oh, maybe we did a sober, season overview or something like that. Yeah, but um, just to see another layer in the story that I didn't think was there. I mean, I, I, I make no bones about the fact that I really, really, really struggle with the McCoy era. Really struggle with it, particularly mm. that first season. Mm-hmm. But rewatching it for this podcast back when we first started, mm. I think really early days. Seeing layers that weren't there, and in the writing, I think maybe what we did was when we did the McCoy episode, we said we'd watch one story, and maybe you went and watched Paradise Towers. I think I probably did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the acting was still as ropey and uncomfortable I don't think as the it acting's was. Ropey. Most of the acting in it. Some of the Kangs is a bit. I... The old ladies are great. Yes, the caretakers the... Mm. up until the moment at which. Um, Richard Briers goes mental. Yeah, caretakers are great. Yeah, I don't think that most of the Kangs are fine. Do you know why I rewatched it? Because I did some illustrations for someone. Somebody asked me to do some illustrations based on the story. That's why I did it. That's why I watched it. So yeah, and it, uh, and you liked it then? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I found a way to enjoy it. <laughs> I think that's the polite way of saying it. I, I could still see its flaws, and I could still see why I didn't like it at the time. And I still there's still elements that I just think, you know, if only. But um, I think it's great. I think it looks and feels like a Hartnell story or a Troughton. Mm, mm. And I think the performances and the humour that runs through it, the black humour that runs through it, keeps it ticking it is, along nicely. Yeah, it's a bit, becoming a bit of a cliche, but it is very 2008 and It is. I've held yeah. off re-watching some of the season, or all of season 24, because I suspect that I would like it more. So I want to sort of delay it for as long as possible until 1987 becomes so far in the past that it's like watching 1960s television. Yeah. And it's getting that. It's getting that mm. way. It starts to feel now that... Actually, I know I did watch Dalton Bannerman again recently, and it is... It is... Bollocks. Oh, come on. <laughs> but, but Thank you, Matt. It's still good Thank fun. You. I still think it's good fun, and I still think it's got good bits, and I still love... The, sort of the, there's a degree... There's a layer of poetry in it. Um, Paradise Towers, I think I would enjoy if I watched it again, but I don't think I've seen it since. I think the, my problem with that that season is I recorded it off the telly when it was on in 1987, and then I wore the, wore the tapes out just re-watching watching it, it, re-watching it, because this was just at the point where I started getting old Doctor Who videos. So it was either that or I wore, and I wore Pyramids of Mars and Death of the Daleks out. Yeah, yeah. But Pyramids of Mars and Death of the Daleks and Seeds of Doom only take you so far. So then you go around McCoy again. Yeah, so, yeah. And I think, yeah, I, wa- I overwatched it back in the 1980s. And I need where to get it, back to it. Where did it sit in the season? I'm just trying to think, was it the second? second it was the second story. It was the first Cartmel story. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a different beast, isn't it, to the time of the Rani? But I think I for want, the first Cartmel story, I think it's I kind of want to... Strong and... I kind of really want to rewatch Time of the Rani as well. No. Having listened to um, Radio Free Scaros, they did a, a watch of Commentary. it. Commentary. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And you should and also Warren, listen to... Warren uh, Fry was sort of... He, he hated it, but he was struggling to... He was struggling not to appreciate bits of it. Yeah. Which is quite, a, you know, 
it's quite a good a good indication. And um, Flight Through Entirety did a great deconstruction of Time and the Rani mm. and made it sound like the best Doctor Who story there has ever been. Yeah, I'm still suspicious of it and I'm still not holding out hope. I don't think Time and the Rani's awful. I think there I... are some production bits that are bad and I don't think it'll ever hold up as a good Doctor Who story, but I don't think it's awful by any stretch. And I think it's a lot closer to the Cartmel stuff than Cartmel gives it credit for. Partly just because that seemed to be in the air at the time. There's things like some of the design work. I, I like the design of the Tetra. Well, and, uh, and yeah. it's just that silly spe- bit of the tongue, isn't it, that people think and about? Some of the special effects were yeah, yeah, the bubbles, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and the titles, the, even the title sequence, mm. which you know, you know, it has mm. that that sound, that music behind it. But yeah, it was like a quantum leap. From it, it was for Doctor Who, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was also a period of time though where every title sequence on ITV was computer generated, right. CGI like that. So it had some really? game show, game yeah, show. It was, yeah. yeah, you've been framed and all that stuff. Every every single game show had CGI. I think spinning it's, I titles. Think, I think things. it might have been before that. I think it might have been. I think Do that think? was. I think that was the early to mid nineties with you've been framed. I think this was just. Just a little. This was more sort of what going for gold, mm. blockbusters, that sort of time. Just before, I think this was like the start of that. I, I've realised that this was all on at the time. I was I'd just gone to college to design to uh, study graphic design. So mm. obviously that that logo, yeah, was just. Mm. <laughs> but that logo is supposed to be reminiscent of 2000 AD, and I think oh, it, it just is. doesn't work. It literally know. doesn't work. I don't think it's a great logo. No. But I think it... I it think doesn't it, work as a logo, and you can see that from the magazine. But they ditched it as soon as they could possibly ditch it, because it just doesn't... It made, it it made the magazine play. look cheap. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm being overtly harsh, because that's my thing. My thang. Let's move on, then, shall yeah. we? Okay, next up, Matt. So this this follows my theme. <laughs> of, of yeah, so uh, this is a story that has gone from bad to good. Yeah, and it's a Hartman one. It's the Reign of Terror. So I've recently, not like Simon, I haven't been doing the the, the pilgrimage through Doctor Who stories, but recently I've been watching watching old black and white Doctor Who in my bedroom with the headphones on and the lights turned out. Yeah, one episode a night, and I've been trying to watch. Not the not the famous ones, not the good ones, but the ones that I've seen once before and maybe haven't seen all the way through. Um, and Reign of Terror was one of those that I saw. And I again, I approached it um, with low expectations um, because I'd heard a lot of stuff about the the animation not being great or the animation being distracting and and not working with with the rest of it. Um, and the animation was distracting, and the animation was different from the rest of it. But I thought it worked really well. I liked so, the animation on the Reign of Terror. Yeah, I don't know but what I've, problem people really had. With but it. I have heard. I mean, I have heard yeah, I know. people. People. I, I mean, it distracting. I'll be honest. What, what was distracting? But, but, came but out. then I think I probably like you. I should watch it again and maybe focus less on it because I yeah. I, I was fascinated by the process. Yeah. I mean, it's that, sort that's of, the it's trouble. Sort of I, was, I wasn't watching it as a Doctor Who story. I was watching it as 
Oh, let's see how they've animated to the old soundtrack because I was yeah I was thinking under the bonnet rather than watching the actual thing. So yeah, I mean it's sort of rotoscoped animation, and they do it slightly differently in that they don't try to recreate the camera, the camera the original camera positions. Yeah. So you get lots of strange skewed close-ups and zooms and and various other things. Um, and and so that was kind of it, it it kind of drew me in once I got used to it once I got my head around it that drew me in and the the existing the existing episode that that sort of movement between the kind of really rare location footage and the interior footage and the sets were really good and the performances were really good and it kind of I mean, it was, in a way, it was a kind of a classic getting locked up and escaping and getting locked up again story. Mm. The, 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 the nice thing about the Reign of Terror is a bit like he's a Marinus. It's a different location for every mm. episode almost. Yeah. And the funny thing about it is the two episodes that are basically in the same location are the two that are animated. Yes. So yeah. I found it less distracting because it wasn't... I mean, the, it wasn't quite as distinct as I've made it sound. But I found it less distracting because those two episodes that were animated felt like they were telling a story within the story anyway. And it's another one of those... It's one of those Hartnell stories that reminds you how good Hartnell was. Yeah. So it gives Hartnell comedy. And it's like the Romans. You you sort of forget how funny Hartnell is and how sophisticated his approach to acting can be. And he's not a one-note... In my head, he's always been a one-note. He tends to... I tend to think of him as a one-note actor. He's always the crotchety doctor. Or, you know, he's always the doctor from the Daleks. But actually, in these stories, you can see that he's having fun. He's not too confused by things. He doesn't look tired. He's not being shuffled off for episodes at a time and made invisible or replaced by someone else. He's just... He's just... This is the point in the series where they know they've got a hit. Mm. They know they're a success and they're just having fun with it. Mm. And that felt really good. And I think the first time I saw it, because I wasn't watching it an episode at a time, I tried to watch it. I think it's six episodes long. I tried to watch yeah, it yeah. all the way through. And I watched it in the daytime. And I watched it with that mindset. And this is the same as Power of the Daleks, but the other way around. I watched it with the mindset of I wanted to absorb this historical moment. Mm. And that didn't work for me. But watching it an episode at a time in the dark with the headphones on yeah. and just concentrating on getting lost in the story, I realised that the story was really good. Mm. It's an easy one to get lost in because yeah. it really sort of evokes, you know, the things it's trying to say. I'm looking forward to trying it again, this this whole process of doing an episode a day mm. uh, so they are completely separate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It won't be long. I know, I've just got to start the sense right. Sense but- rights. But the other thing about Reign of Terror is... Wish me luck. The other other thing about Reign of Terror is it says something about the 1960s as well because a lot of these stories are drawing on the education that kids are having then, which, I mean, I certainly never had at school. We didn't cover the French Revolution. We got stuck in World War II endlessly or World War I, Mm. just learning 20th century history around in circles, all about the Corn Wars. Um, So things like the Aztecs and... Romans and the reign of terror they all they all say something old fashioned about how kids are educated mm, mm. It's, it's a real shame I mean it's not until the, the time of horrible histories we've 
Yeah. I think it's a big, big hole as far as when we were at school. Yeah. As far as that, this kind of level of immersive learning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, the, the they pre- could reintroduce, the, we've discussed this before, could they bring back purely historical, his, historical <laughs> stories? Oh my God. Tired again. Historical stories. Well, we oh. never know. They might do. Mm. They came it's close, true. didn't they? They came close with Thin Ice. That was close. Yeah. yeah. It had a monster in it. <laughs> the only problem with, I thought you were going to say, could they bring back edge teaching these sorts of big moments of history? But that's kind of a Michael Gove, that's kind of the Michael Gove idea. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, you don't get the breadth of history, you get a depth of history and sophistication of history nowadays, but you don't get that sort of, that kind of stories from history feel about it. But like you say, there are little portions of a history that just get completely overlooked. Yeah. That we're just completely yeah. unaware of. Yeah. Yeah. Big In gaps. 40 years time, it'll be all Trump. Well, at the moment, the trouble with the education system is you talk about history and they just do modules on particular bits, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And I remember being... There's not much else utterly... they can do, though, because otherwise you don't, you just gloss over. I, I think the important thing would be to try and... Ins- interest people in history in order to get them to read yeah. more widely which sort used of to get, almost happened with me mm-hmm. but much later on in life well prior to our generation you used to get a basic grounding in history first before you went into the specific stuff these days you just go straight into the specific specific stuff and you don't get i can't even tell you the order of the kings and queens no no we, we, we did the to... industrial revolution we did medicine and we lister and Stuff well, like these days, the order of the kings and queens are less important because well, you can you're supposed to be learning about the little men rather than the big men. Still, it's... so the order of the kings and queens is what they're trying to. But yeah, it's a useful way of kind of dividing it's, history. It's a measuring device. Yeah. yeah. Shall we uh, move on? Hmm. We've gone out of sequence a bit. Have we? Yeah. So Matt, you're up next. No, I've done that. No, That's Simon. Power of the no, that wasn't Power of the Daleks. That's the point. Right. Right. We've oh, gone off our... Yeah, no. Well, we to I did that, that third. I did that third. No, you didn't. And that's, that's season four. We did that first, and it was Sharda. Uh, we did that yes. second, and it was... Right, this is... Uh, no, that was series four of the modern series that we should oh, have Oh, okay, then. okay. That's why I'm confused. Right, Simon, yours is the next choice. <laughs> okay, which one? That one. I'm going for, and this isn't because I necessarily think it's that bad, because I still really enjoy it, and it's the TV movie. Mm. But I realise now how I was carried along by Paul McGann's performance, mm. and the it was all about seeing Doctor Who done with with money. a modern yeah done with money mm. and a modern sensibility and a bit of style and a bit of flair. Yeah. Um, but oh my word is it flawed you know and um, as I say I, st- I still enjoy it but I do realise that I'm sometimes you can be just carried along by someone's performance I, I could just I could watch Paul McGann I don't know paint a wall hmm. I suppose as long as we were talking about it at the same time but um, yeah I, I, I'm kind of catching up with the people who are quite critical of the TV movie. I just find it flawed by execution, but not by... It's not a script thing. It's the way it was chopped about, the way it was sort of pulled about by different different people, mm. the way that it was edited down. So the necessary cuts of the violent scenes did 
did kind of botch up a portion of it. Mm. And I think the conclusion was botched as well. But like you, I watched it the first time and that didn't matter because the pant-wetting excitement of new Doctor Who yeah, and having waited for the video to come in and having gone into WH Smith. Well, far more forgiving in those days, weren't we? I mean, with the squeaky Dalek voices and the Master looked nothing like the Master. Well, we had, we had, like, these days, we expect Doctor Who to be just around the corner, even if we have to wait a year and a half. Mm. And we've seen it come back and we know it's going to come back again. And it comes back in 10-week, 12-week long batches. Mm. This one was much more nervy, much more important. Because mm. if they got this wrong, then they'd screw the series over for the rest of... Did you buy it on VHS yeah. before it was transmit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I made a point of showing people. I bought saying, I look, I... look, it's not crap anymore. It's This is what Doctor Who's like now. Yeah. And... and... <laughs> Stapling people's eyes open so they had to yeah. watch it. Yeah, I showed the bit with the snake and everything like that. Yeah. Oh, this is really gruesome, you know. I think I got the book before the video came out. I think the book came out before the video, right? And then I had to like try and resist reading the book, and I would sort of sneak like read little bits of the book because I couldn't resist it. Yeah, but I read the Five Doctors. I think before. Yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah. That was a big mistake, wasn't it? Mm. I remember. Yeah, I didn't especially think much of the TV movie when it came out and these days I prefer it to what I did then. <laughs> I'm the opposite. Yeah. And I don't particularly go for Paul McGann either, if I'm honest. Oh, okay. I think he's a bland doctor. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a bad performance and I don't think he's an actor without charisma. I just, I don't think he's a doctor really. I think if he was given more to, more to, and then beyond, Maybe, beyond, yeah. beyond the audio, because what he did in... Um, Monocled me Night, Night of the Doctor. I think he still didn't like. He still didn't achieve his full potential. But that, like that, like five minutes, seven yeah, minute yeah. clump, showed you what what it could be like to have a season of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think him instead of Eccleston. I think I liked Eccleston, but I don't think it would have been bad. Paul McGann. I think it would still have been kind of. He still had that kind of that. He does have the charisma he is a to carry a series. Yeah. yeah I mean, you can argue that it's not Doctor-ish, but Doctor could be anyone, surely. So. Well, I just felt more like Peter Davison to me. Mm. Okay. But yeah, I've got those lovely moments, and I'm guessing that's strength in the script and, and his delivery, you know. Mm. I think it's terrifically well written, considering all the strains and strictures he had, and I think it's brilliantly directed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, to imagine what a whole series of that would have been like is it, it beggars belief, really, doesn't it? It's, it, it? Maybe it's better in my mind than it would have been, but I think it would have been quite a strong. Have you, have you read the outline of what they were planning on doing? No, no, I haven't. Or what it's, it's, yeah, it's quite bizarre. I think it could have worked, but it's very strange. It's like a mixture of remakes of old stories, so remaking Genesis of the Daleks. And remaking Pyramids of Mars, but in a modern way, and then having a and there's another version so where I'm not sort averse of, to that. I was going to say, you know, it, it, there's another version which is about the Doctor's family and about the Doctor's brother. I don't know. Okay, these are all you, variations yeah. on different things as well that are going on before. It's yeah. come out more recently that it would more likely have been a TV movie a year, okay, than a series, mm-hmm. because it wasn't. It was never set up between the companies that co-produced it to be a series. 
Mm. So I think it's come out more recently than it would more likely have just been a 90-minute film every year. Equally, I'm I'm thankful for it. Yeah. In as much as you got to see McCoy as how good he could have been as well. Yeah. With with different material and with a different aesthetic. Mm. There's almost like he's almost like an in-between doctor, isn't he? He's in between yeah. McGann and McCoy, where you've got this, you know, this old man of travel. You know, this, mm. I love the hair and everything. It's it's just great. He's only in it for about two minutes. Though. I he's know, but it's barely any. But he, but he, well, it's the Boba Fett effect, isn't it? It's the, they're, they're hardly there at all, so your mind fills in all the gaps. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Ama- amazingly, he makes an impression, which you wouldn't. You wouldn't expect, and it's an impression distinct from his his BBC version. There is a mm. difference. Mm. Should we move on to your next one, Matt? Yes, which is the one from the Donna series. Oh yes. Um, so this is the Stolen Earth. Oh really? Slash the other the last Journey's one. End. Journey's End. But I think Stolen Earth in particular. Um, this is from Good to Bad. Um, so I watched it yesterday. Um, so I, I had a sudden urge because it's all up on the BBC iPlayer. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. It's actually not all up on the BBC iPlayer. It's up to, I think, Matt Smith on the BBC iPlayer. Is it? And then it stopped. Yeah. Because I wanted to watch some Capaldi. Some, um, I, wa- I wanted to watch the Capaldi Davros episodes yeah. because I haven't seen them since they were on and I didn't record them off the telly and I haven't got them on... DVD, and I just thought, oh, I remember quite enjoying that. I might watch that. Couldn't find them because, uh, so I decided to watch the other Davros stories, uh, the David Tennant ones. Um, you enjoyed them the first time out? The first time round, I was swept away by how exciting they were. Um, I and the, the half the nation watching because this <laughs> was like the high point. Yeah, yeah. This was in the middle of that point of of the new series where you suddenly realise that, my God, this is a really popular series. I grew up in the 1980s. This isn't what Doctor Who's <laughs> all about, but it's in the... It's it's actually a water-cooler moment. It's in the newspapers. That ending an episode on Regeneration I thought was the most amazing cliffhanger. I thought I genuinely... I I suspect that the resolution to this isn't going to be quite as exciting as I think it is. But for that week between the two episodes, I thought thought they pulled the rug. I thought it was going to be David Morrissey or it was going to be something surprising. And I thought they'd regenerated him by surprise. Mm. Um, And even when it turned out not to be that, Russell T. Davis managed to kind of gloss over that kind of anticlimax with a sort of a, he just basically rattled onto the next set piece. And it was set piece, set piece, set piece. Um, We saw Sarah Jane come back which I hadn't been watching the Sarah Jane adventures and so that was quite exciting and Rose Tyler was back so I was really swept away watching it again yesterday out of context of the moment out of context of the episode and having seen Stephen Moffat's stories since then and seen and seen to my surprise how the series has developed and how the series has kind of modernised even though then it was the most modern things, I suddenly realised that this was 10 years old or whatever it was. This was now old television and it felt dated and it felt like I could see the cracks between the set pieces and I could I could see, I've read 
the Russell T Davis writer's book. Oh, the, the, yeah, the writer's writer's tale. So I know how Russell T Davis wrote, and that reading that book, it gave me a real appreciation for for how he wrote, and it gave me a real sense of awe about the pressure that he was under. But it also completely destroyed my illusion that he had he was under control when he was writing, and I kind of lost lost that sense of faith in his writing that he knew that he was he knew what he was doing mm. because you read about the internal wranglings about well we had to do this because of budget reasons or I don't know where I'm going I'm going to go for a cigarette and then he comes back and he says screw it I'm going to have this this and this or Ben Cook from Doctor Who magazine tells him what to do and he <laughs> and he puts it in and that kind of that's fascinating to read but also when you're re-watching these yeah. things you kind of watch it thinking, I don't really trust that you know where you're going. And I suspect, I suspect that if I read an account of Stephen Moffat's writing of these stories, it might have, I sort of hope he doesn't release them because at the moment I feel like he does have control over every little thing he does. And I quite like that illusion. I suspect it's just as chaotic. Mm. And the little I've heard about the Day of the Doctor and other sort of fragments it's clear that there were sort of moments of, of chaos and moments of putting things in. But I think Stephen Moffat covers it up better. I think the real the real skill and the sort of sorcery of Stephen Moffat is the ability to go from chaos to chaos without it seeming like chaos mm. and to make it look like he's planning and things like that he isn't threaded. planning. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes he does plan things, but I think there's a significant portion that... He doesn't plan, but he writes with such skill mm. that actually you don't notice that he hasn't planned. Mm. And in retrospect, that's his plan. With Stephen Mo- with Russell T. Davis, I don't think it, it kind of works when you're watching it the first time, but watch it the second time or the third time, <laughs> ten years later. Well, And it just doesn't quite, it just doesn't quite work. But mm. when you watch the Russell T. Davis ones, there's a sense when you're watching it that you have no idea what's going to happen next, and largely that's because neither well, did he. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is no bad thing, but it does mm. for rewatching. It's not working. I mean, his individual, you know, like things like Midnight mm. do work in their own yeah. right, and yeah, painfully obvious that he can write, yeah, incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are elements of that in, in there aren't there but yeah like you say it's like there are th- with the Stephen Moffat there are threads and whether they've been woven in after the event if you see what I mean to make it seem more complex than it than it is the quiet but but mm. but the Russell T Davies ones are fairly apparent I don't want to use the word obvious but they're fairly apparent when you look the back at it, it's you like can he gets see as whether... far as the cliffhanger with the regeneration. Yeah, and then you can almost hear him asking himself, "How the hell do I get out of this?" Yeah. Oh, I know. I've got a hand that's been sitting in a jar since the but end I of remember, series one. That thing of I remember thinking at the time, "How are they going to top this one? Why is this? You know, why do these these yeah. these climaxes get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where you know?" And I, but I remember there being a sense of I remember there being a sense of sadness to the end of that story where all of the Russell uh, sorry where Sarah Jane came in there mm. Torchwood came in they were all there and very much a sense that this was modern Doctor Who's imperial phase this was mm. where it could do no wrong and where it was in the papers and there all these series going on and it was like there's the culmination there's the climax of all these different elements coming together yeah and this won't happen again yeah so yeah and and also this is the high 
it's the high point, but in retrospect, it's the high point before, not the slump, but before, I don't know, it's the moment of excess. It's it's the kind of moon, yeah, moonraker yeah, moment. Excess is a good word, actually. Yeah. It's the moonraker moment or the die another day moment. Yeah, yeah. Die, and I can't decide when I watched it the first time. Mm. It was kind of Moonraker, which is really amusing, mm. excessive. But you think, well, they're going to have to scale it back after that. In retrospect, I think it's more die another day, mm. where they built up to this point where there's no going back, and you've got Madonna, <laughs> <laughs> Madonna as a fencing instructor and an invisible car, mm. and it has to come. There, there has to be a come a come down afterwards. Yeah. Unfortunately, that come down, apart from the. The uh the the sort of the the standalone episodes that come down wasn't a hangover that come down was moving straight into Stephen Moffat. Mm. Mm. Am I right in thinking you, you don't like the Donna ending? Do you? Is that is that what something that you've? I'm not especially fond of it. So I I I thought it was lovely and I thought incredibly tragic and a brilliant piece of writing as far as that's I think concerned. It's a terrible piece of writing. Do you? Yeah, I mean, no. In so far as character and dialogue's concerned, it's a oh, nice yeah, bit yeah, of writing. Okay, maybe so far as idea. what he's doing, yeah. the idea and the execution of it is horrendous. Mm. It's entirely unnecessary. It's thrown in there only for the character beat, which is fine. You throw things in there for saying, character yeah. beat, but it needs to make it doesn't plot pay, sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make yeah. any plot sense. Bringing, bringing Rose back for both of them, or for, certainly for that second of the two episodes really undercuts the Donna moment. Yeah. Because the Doctor's completely absorbed and bringing in, bringing in, like, an homunculus Doctor (laughs) doesn't cut it because that Doctor isn't quite the right Doctor. It doesn't feel like the right Doctor. Let's move on, shall we? Simon, your choice is next. Okay, well, moving on from (coughs) An Unearthly Child, I go from my good to bad... With the Daleks. Mm. I wondered if it was going to be that. Yeah. Um, I expected, because of how much I enjoyed it in Another Three Child, moving on to the Daleks, i.e. the gear shift of things, um, is really quite marked. And I struggled to get through it. I was, I, As I say, I was watching an episode a day, and I was just trying to get through it. Mm. And um, I, I have to say, it's... Not, it's obviously not the story. It must be execution. It must be acting, possibly production. I don't know because the movie version is so much better. I was having a conversation with my next door neighbour because I was trying to flog him digital marketing um, for various reasons. And I happened to mention, because he's a coin expert, so I happened to mention, oh yeah, I understand, I understand coin experts because I'm a Doctor Who fan, so I know how, you know fans can get very picky mm. and very detailed. And he said, oh, I've got a question for you. Who was the first Doctor Who? And I said, well, William Hartnell. And he said, no, that's a common misconception. It was Peter Cushing was the first Doctor Who. <laughs> and I said, no, he wasn't. But yes, he was. He was the special <laughs> film Doctor Who. And he was in all the, in the films. And he remembered the movies more than any of that. Doctor Who meant the movies to him. Yeah. And I think I would much rather watch Peter Cushing in The Daleks Doctor Who and the Daleks than William Hartnell in mm. Dead Planet. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's quite stagnant at times, and uh, it's filled I'm, with cliche. Yeah, especially in the second half. Mm. Mm. It's it's overlong, and 
there's just a lack of. But I think it suffers because of the fifty years that come after it. Mm. I think if you could expunge those fifty years from your mind and sit down and watch the Daleks and get rid of the Peter Cushing movie from your mind as well mm. and sit down and watch those seven episodes, you'd have an entirely different experience. It's very, it's very easy to say. Well, the movie version is much better, but. Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I was just taken aback with how much I didn't enjoy it. Is it the first foothill in the journey through Doctor Who? It's like that first kind of, you've gone through the sunny plain of an unearthly child and then mm. you've got the first kind of mm. challenging... Yeah, the first episode is amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. The world building and, mm. you know, the set design and, yeah, direction. And, and you think, oh, my God, they were doing all this so early on. Mm. Um and then the Daleks turn up. Yeah. It's sort of yeah, a four-episode... question, what, what are they... It's a four-episode story, and somebody's told Terry Nation, after four episodes, actually, we're going to need another three. Yeah. Mm. Or whatever. Mm. And then he has yeah, to add... Yeah, because it picks up the last two episodes. It picks up quite yeah. dramatically. And so he has to add a kind of a journey up to a mountain and a jump across a ravine mm. that doesn't quite... Yeah. ...doesn't quite work in Lime Grove. I think it's three and five you really want to get rid of. Mm. I think four's okay. Two's okay. Mm. It's but yeah, it's definitely two episodes too long. Mm. So yeah, there's not much more I can say really. Just that I just I didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as I thought I would. It's not that I built myself up to it, but I you know it, it seemed to be taking over so well. Um, How far through are you now? I'm just about to start the sense rise. As soon as I order a copy. Do you want to borrow a copy? I might do. I might do. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to order it. Though. The other thing I said to myself is I've got quite a few holes oh, okay. in the collection. Okay. Oh, so, so as I get to the them, I'll order them. Okay, okay. But it's, it's holding me up. <clears throat> the Daleks, when I bought it on VHS the first time I saw it, I found it interminable. Mm. But later on, I watched it an episode a day, and actually, I really enjoyed it. But I did, I did what I said. I tried to put myself in the mindset, you know, imagine you've never heard of or seen any of what comes after and you take this on its own merits mm. as a piece of TV that's going out to a completely cold audience mm. Mm. and I and I think it's a completely different story should we should we do your last two choices then Matt okay. your final choice is so this is completely different um so this is McCoy's from another McCoy have we done a McCoy yet yes, yes we've, we've done, done McCoy Paradise Towers uh, so this is Ghostlight Okay. Um, I didn't like that first time you saw it. No, I did. So, so a lot of these stories, I sort of, they've improved in my mind over time. But it doesn't mean that I disliked it when it was first on. I think when it was first on, I was, I was 10, 11. I was 11, 12. I was 12. All right. I don't need to worry that much. Well, no, because it's it's important. Because watching that season when you're 12... Yeah, it's Battlefield's just... great. Oh my God, um, uh, Curse of Fenric's really frightening and it's really good and there's fighting and there's Russian soldiers and there's vampires. And Ghostlight is kind of the quiet... Weird one sort in of the middle. Weird one in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And then, and so the process of this improving for me happened very incrementally over, through the 1990s and I've kind of grown up with this story and it's kind of, I haven't watched it in a while, but it reached the point where last time I watched it, I thought it was my favourite Doctor Who story ever. 
Yeah. And I thought it was the most sophisticated, the most kind of poetic, the, the most coherent Doctor Who story where the sound, the music, the look, the, the script and the performances all work so well together, the atmosphere. Well, when it was first on, I was 21, and I think I could easily say it was my favourite Doctor Who story since Tom Baker mm. at the time. Yeah. Being that age when it was on, yeah. I mean, those those few, those McCoy, those last two McCoy seasons and possibly 24 and bits um, <laughs> were really, I mean, they've really started to, they've really sort of survived the test of time. More so than the Colin than the Colin Baker stories. Yeah, yeah. The Colin Baker stories. It's only with distance that we can see that. I I think that the sophistication in those Sylvester McCoy stories, and Ghostlight is there's nothing like Ghostlight, on television, before or since. There's never been an attempt to do a sort of Ghostlight in the new series. It's completely it's yeah. completely unique. It's not it's. It's up there with, in terms of different to uh, listen or um, or midnight. It's trying to do something different, but it's trying to do something different in a kind of a, almost an accidental way. So it's not a concept episode. It's just it's just a kind of a distillation. So was it ever bad in your head? It was never bad in my head. It just didn't make an impact when I saw it the first time. I didn't understand it mm. fully. Um, I kind of found bits of it frightening. Um, but Curse of Fenric's much more immediate, much more accessible. See, Curse of Fenric still was sitting there in a in kind of um limbo. in limbo in my yeah. head. I cannot take to Curse of Fenric. Right. As much as people tell me. I don't think it's bad. Mm. Yeah, I'm the same. But I can't latch on to it. I can't find what to latch on to. When I first saw season 26, mm. I loved Ghostlight. Mm. Battlefield, I enjoyed, but there were things about it where I thought, oh, this production is messing this up big time. Yeah. But Curse of Fenric, I just thought, there's some really nice ideas here, but it just doesn't stick together. And then Survival, I didn't really like at all. I mm. think with Curse of Fenric, I think this was also a period, so we've... It's at that point where now I'm I'm not just recording off the telly, I'm also collecting the old stories as well. And I must have a kind of a batch of old stories on video. So Curse of Fenric felt felt classic to me. I was starting to mm. understand that concept of classic Doctor Who mm. because in a way that it was really important back then because they hadn't been released on video. So every video release was like a rediscovery and they were releasing the strong stories first. And so you start seeing Pyramids of Mars and you start seeing things like Day of the Daleks and you have, like, you're being told what's a classic and what isn't. And so Curse of Fenric felt like you're seeing bits of the sea devils or you're seeing, you know, bit, bits of that. You've got a church in it. And that, the the cliffhanger to episode three, the, the Dr. Judson being possessed, that's the bit I still latch onto. I still think that's an amazing moment. Mm. That's that kind of that kind of cutting and pacing, the cutting between the sea and the yeah. action, and the cutting between the the, the vampires awake, waking. That sort of sophistication, sophistication of editing, mm. Mm. isn't something. I mean, this is this is the same series that brought us Terror of the Vervoids about three years yeah. before. 
And if you think, if you compare Terror of the Vervoids just in terms of direction, in terms of editing, in terms of look and performance, compare that to just Curse of Fenrir, I mean, compare it to to Ghostlight, which is what I'm talking about, it's like a different, it's a completely different game. Mm. But even Curse of Fenrir, I mean, it's, you know, it's a different... That would have been in the screenplay, though, wouldn't it? To the, the fact of, you know, cutting back possibly, to the... Yeah. Um, sometimes and sometimes not. It depends. Mm. They'll make... Directors and producers make these choices as well. They see what's working and they... But the scripts the script were better. I mean, the, <clears> script, <throat> the scripts... I mean, Andrew Cartmel was was a kind of a... Accidentally, I think... He was an accidental magician. Yeah, I mean, he's a real, an amazing choice considering the, yeah. his lack of experience. Well, and the, basically, Eric Sayward had the same lack of experience when he got the job. Yeah, yeah. And... He didn't see. It took him a while to find his feet, and then when he did find his feet, that's when everything started to kick off. Whereas Cartmel seems to come in and know exactly what he wants straight away. Mm. I think maybe because Cartmel applied for the job, whereas Sayward was a, "Will you come and do this?" So he didn't really get a chance to sit down and think about it. Well, I also maybe. get the feeling that Cartmel was more collegiate. So Cartmel, because he was more friendly to the writers and he was more hanging yeah. out with the writers, that helped the rewriting so as soon as you start rewriting with the writers on board rather than rewriting it's just a without naturally them, friendlier person yeah. whereas mm-hmm. Sayward seems like a naturally quite shy mm. singular person yeah yeah anyway shall we uh... I was going to say uh, I could easily have put survival in here as bad to good because mm. mm. I did think that was bad at the time and I rewatched it fairly recently and loved it yeah. actually loved it but let's have your last choice then, Simon. My <clears throat> last choice. Again, I haven't got that much to say about it, apart from the fact that when re- re-watching it, I was amazed how much I enjoyed it. it was Planet of Fire. I was going to say, you told me season 21, because this is what we've done. I've asked you to mm. tell me the season, but not the story, so I could work out an order where we won't sort of <laughs> bump two doctors up. Again, I remember watching it and think I actually thought at the time it was Peter Davison's last story. I got my maths wrong and thought it was the last story and he was going to end up right. regenerating. So I kind of just weathered my way through it. Mm. And colour-wise, it was all very beige. Everything was all very sandy and lots of people walking around with um, headdresses on and things uh, and didn't really get anything from it. But recently, re-watching it, I was pleasantly surprised at how watchable it was and um, it was just great the way it all came together. And... Um, some respect, I preferred it to Case of Anjazani in a weird way. I do, mm. frankly. Not in every way, but in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it obviously hasn't got the impact of Case of Anjazani, it hasn't got the dramatic kind of... I was, what year are we talking, 84? So I was about 17 when this was going on. Mm. And unlike most 17-year-olds, maybe I'd grown out of wanting action and violence and fighting and gruesomeness. Mm. So actually my reaction to Planet of Fire on the first broadcast was, oh, it's nice that this one's a bit slower, it's got a bit more character, it's got a bit more politics, Mm. it's got a bit more all these other things. And I was absorbed in the story in a way that I wasn't with a lot of the other stories of the time. Mm. So I was probably... That's actually been a common thing, probably because I'm a little bit older than the pair of you. <laughs> that I'm in the same, I was in the same place then as kind of yeah. And, and equally, I think Peter Peter Wingard in there kind of there's almost whether something ripples out with the rest of the cast because everyone plays with a certain amount of gravitas mm. as well. 
So there's real kind of depth and yeah, it's a little bit hokey as as a lot of the eighties well, dot two stuff was, but. It does a better job of but, disguising the difference between the um, interiors and the exteriors <clears throat> than a lot of stories do. But what it doesn't, so I don't mind. I don't mind Planet Fire, and I probably need to rewatch it again. What what I remember from the last time I watched it is, it's one of these stories where they go abroad and they use abroad. It's like the two yeah, doctors, yeah, yeah. Mm. where mm. when the the scene where the doctor's fishing is set in an alien planet. Mm. but it's so obviously Spain yeah. and then he goes to Spain so there's something about where they needed to set bits of this in a quarry in England mm. in order to make that division between the alien planets I did and find the... that, I think I've said before on here that, that I found that confusing because yeah. obviously the, the bits were Perry yeah. and, and it's so similar looking that you think mm. what is she somewhere else on the same planet Yeah. so that's a little confusing but having said that, Lanzarote the, the volcanic yeah, the, the volcano in Lanzarote. That's a perfect place to film an alien landscape, and it's ahead of its time mm. in going somewhere like that, because that's what exactly what the modern series does. Yeah. And the old series either went to Paris or Seville or Amsterdam, and so to do to Lanzarote and do this, that mm. really was you'd never seen that sort of thing before. It did make sense in a way that the two doctors just made no, no. sense whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. All right, then, if anybody wants to know what my five choices are, they'll have to buy the next edition of Starburst magazine. <laughs> I wish I could say which number it was, but it, they're up to so many, so high numbers now, I, they swim before my eyes. Um, before we go, though, I've got one thing more to say. There may not be a podcast for the next couple of weeks or so, because the operation that I was thinking I might have to have last year and spoke about, I finally am having. And apparently I will be completely incapable of doing anything for at least a fortnight, if not longer afterwards. So unless I get enough episodes banked up to paper over the meantime, August might be a Blue Box podcast-free month, but we'll be back in around September, if that's the case. So... Is your wife going to have to feed you and things? No. (laughs) I... I'm losing the. You use. said incapable of using anything. Well, I'm anything. losing the use of one hand for several weeks. Oh, okay. Which makes. <laughs> is it so, the wrong? Is it the wrong hand? No, it's not the wrong hand. <laughs> would Would it be like somebody else's doing it? For a while. No. No. But you won't be able to drive for a start. I won't be able to drive for a start. No. And thing and simple things where you think, oh, you could probably do that with one hand. <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. This is what we we are being so insensitive. This is what we need Lee here for to Uh, deliver some gravitas to the pod. When I broke my drawing hand, I mean, I I completely get. But if it's the it's my left hand, yeah. But simple things like writing aren't going to be simple, even if you think they're going to be simple, because you know I type two-handed. Are you going to explore um, voice recognition software? No, I don't know what I'll do. I'll just okay. take it as it comes and see what happens. I mean, I'm not saying I won't be able to do anything, but driving out to do the podcast and then mixing it afterwards, which when you use the software is a two-hand thing, really. I'm just saying it's, there, there's a good chance there'll be no podcast in August. And then we'll be back in September. 
But we'll see, you know, who knows. But uh, I thought I'd better mention it, just in case the feed does go dead for a few weeks. And people are saying, where's the podcast? Anyway, until we do come back then, I was JR. I was Simon. I was Matt. And we'll speak again, not quite so soon. <laughs>